We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, We are kind of continuing that path on allowing God to define who he is, um, and allowing God to define what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Today we kind of come to a, um, not kind of, we do, we come to a huge portion of the Old Testament where God takes the step of defining what his name means, what it should mean, what it should stand for. Um, And and I think on some level, we understand that. We understand the importance of of a name, of a good name. We understand the importance of words that go along with that. We understand the importance of of, um, our own, in a sense, reputations, right? What we stand for, the actions that we take, the things we do, the things we don't do, right? Well, in our text today, God um, takes time out to really define who he is and and what he wants us to view in him. Now, here's why that's important. Because if God doesn't take time out in order to define who he is for us, that actually doesn't stop us from reaching out to him. In fact, on some level, we could say um, all of humankind, no matter whether you are Christian or not, believer, unbeliever, does not matter, um, almost everyone at some point reaches for the divine, reaches for answers. And sometimes it's out there, sometimes it's in here, or maybe there are times when we simply want to just mute and not think about it at all. But on some level, every single human being at some point in their life is going to ask of themselves um, um, questions of the divine. Why am I here? Where am I going? And is there anything beyond this? So that's not uncommon, right? All of us ask that. Now, you might be saying, I wasn't asking myself that this morning, Pastor. Um, But there will be times when we do, right? Uh, um, In in pain and suffering and loss of a loved one, maybe as we see um, far fewer years ahead of us than there are years behind us, at some point, each and every one of us in our entire world reaches for the divine and asks for definitions, asks for truths, and asks for words. God knows that. He knows that we reach for him. In our text, he gives us some answers. That reaching for the divine, um, it can take, I think, at times maybe just thought processes within us. Uh, But throughout history, there's been moments where where, um, people have reached for God or reached for the divine in maybe more physical ways. There's a man named Simeon Stylides, Simon the Stylite. Some of you maybe know of him, are fans of him. No, some of you are like, what is he even saying, right? Um, This man, Simeon Stylides, uh, lived about 400 AD. He was a monk in Syria, in in, uh, western Syria, and his entire desire was to, in a sense, reach to the divine and to know God and in some way, shape, or form, please God and know that he's in a good standing with God, okay? So this is a, a, a woodcut illustration of Simeon Stylides, and you can get the picture of him reaching literally to the divine, asking those questions. Who is God? Um, what are the, the, the characteristics of him? How does he deal with me and our world and, and in our lives? And so um, Simeon did that as a monk. 
And in his early years, he went to the monastery and um, he was really, really good at being a monk, an aesthetic monk. So he would deny himself all the things of the world, right? And, and so did everyone in the monastery, but Simeon kind of took it to another level. In fact, at some point, Simeon got kicked out of his monastery. You want to know why? Because he was too good at being a monk. Yeah, they said, like, literally, this is a, this is a monastery full of people that do nothing but, but dedicate their minds and their bodies to the study of God's word. They said about Simeon Stylides, you are too hardcore and extreme for us even, right? He said he was too zealous. He said, you can't keep living here. You're too zealous. You've got to leave. So Simeon said, fine, because you guys are kind of wimpy and weak anyway, and I don't even want to be a part of your monastery. And so he left. And he climbed up on a pillar. This is a stone carving of Simeon Stylides. He climbed up on a pillar, and the first one, I think, was a little bit shorter, maybe five feet. Then he progressed to one that was about 10 feet. Um, at the end, Simeon Stylides, and if you wonder why his last name is Stylides or Stylite, he ascended on a pillar that was 30 feet above the ground. And that's where he lived out the entire rest of his life. What was he trying to do? He's trying to please God. And even in a physical sense, he said, if I can get 30 feet above the ground, maybe I can touch God. Maybe I can get a little bit closer to him. Right? And so as a monk, maybe we would say, that seems, that seems crazy that he's doing that. But the truth is, we do that intellectually, don't we? We reach out to our God. We want to touch the divine. We want to get closer to truth and to answers. And so we may not climb on a 30-foot pillar, but we climb and we grasp and we search. Simeon Stylides did that. His entire rest of his life, uh, they say they estimate probably 42 years of his life, he lived on the top of a 30-foot pillar. Faithful pilgrims would come along and they would, they would uh, throw food up to him or he had a rope that they would bring food up to him. And he would try to stand on that pillar and do nothing but, but discipline his life and his mind towards reaching the divine. How long would you last? Some of you are like, I'm afraid of heights. I wouldn't even get up. I right? Yeah, right? On some level, it's almost admirable. You're like, how does someone do that, Right? 30 years on just the 30-foot the pillar, right? 42 by some estimates. Simeon Stylides actually tells us why he did something so extreme. So if you take a look at this picture, a uh, painting that was built uh, or that was painted of Simeon Stylides, you can kind of see at the very bottom there's someone that is wrapped that is um, actually a dead body at the bottom. So the story goes that Simeon Stylides had climbed up on this 30-foot pillar, um, and at some point, his mother came to him and said, this is crazy, like, you should come down. And his answer was no, right? He said, I won't, I won't come down. And even upon his mother's death, Simeon Stylides never came down. And he tells us why. On the account of his mother's death, and people thought, okay, this is, surely he's going to come off of his pillar now and stop this journey of trying to reach the divine. Simeon Stylides said this to his mom just prior to, his, to her death. It says, if we are worthy, we shall see one, one another in the life to come. 
So why would you spend your entire life on a 30-foot pillar? Well, Simeon tells us, right? He's trying to be worthy in his God's eyes. He was doing anything he could to try to earn God's favor, even if that meant not being there for his family, his friends, or even at the death of his mother. He vainly built his life on a 30-foot pillar in hopes that he could earn God's love and favor. Simeon's maybe a good illustration for us. As we look into the divine, as we reach to our God above, what does he actually say about himself? Are we expected to climb a 30-foot pillar and to reach him? Or does he come to us? And that's what we want to look at here this morning. And I think it's foundational for how we understand our God above and for us as believers. So our theme this morning uh, is going to be defined, he who stands. And we're going to kind of flesh that out in two different ways. Um, He stands on his own, even when we don't. And he stands in our place and ultimately with us. So it's kind of a two-parter with two parts of each two parts. Does that make sense? That's where we're headed this morning. Uh, You're welcome to follow along with me if you'd like. I'm going to have some of the verses on our screen here, but you're welcome to follow along in the bulletin as well. So start with our very first verse, verse 5. It says this, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. So let's set the context just a little bit of what's happening in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament and with Moses and the Israelites. Two things. Number one, God stood with them and he defines his name, the Lord. Now, uh, at this point, this was the Israelites wandering in the desert after their rescue from slavery in Egypt. Okay, Just prior to this interaction where God says to his Israelite people and to us, if you want to know who I am, I'll tell you. Just prior to this, his people had not been shining examples of of who God was. Moses had gone up on Mount Sinai. God was was delivering to him two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. In that amount of time, the Israelites who were down at the base of the mountain decided, as they reached for the divine, they decided, maybe that God isn't good enough and we should try to fashion one ourselves. They melted all their jewelry, all their earrings, all their necklaces, all those things, and they created for themselves the golden calf. Maybe some of you know that story. In their attempt to grasp a hold of the divine, they took matters into their own hands and crafted and shaped their own divine, form of a golden calf. By the time Moses came down, the Israelite people, this is God's chosen people who had been led out of Egypt, out of slavery. By the time Moses came down, they were, they were reveling and they were worshiping and bowing down to a golden calf rather than their God who had rescued them from Egypt. In fact, the account even goes a step further and says that the unbelieving, the pagan nations around them looked at the Israelites and what they were doing and the worship that they were giving to this golden calf that they clearly had just melted down and made. The unbelieving nations around looked at the Israelites and laughed. Like, what are these people doing, right? Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he didn't laugh. He actually threw the Ten Commandments on the ground and broke them, right? 
Because in that amount of time, in their, their attempt to grasp the divine, they had decided they would fashion one themselves. In that amount of time, they had completely abandoned their God who had led them out of Egypt, and now here they were, worshiping nothing, a false idol, right? Golden calf. Now, what would God's response have been? What would your response have been if you came home to your kids and everything you had taught them and the house was destroyed and they had had a party while you were gone? You maybe would have had some words with them, right? God comes to those Israelites and to Moses and he says, I'm not happy with this, but I want you to know without a shadow of a doubt who I am, why I have come, and all of my being. And so in our very first verse, that's what he says. And here's what's really amazing is, the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, with Moses. Right? So this is a God that isn't just distant on a high mountain on Mount Sinai. This isn't a God that is just theoretical in our minds that we can somehow conjure up. But this is a God that said, I will come down from the mountain. And in fact, if I truly stood in front of you, you could not stand, you could not live. Because if you saw my glory... You, you could not stand in the face of it. But God says to Moses and to the Israelites on this day, I will stand with you. And so he does that. He stands in their midst and he says, this is what my name is meant, is meant to be. These, these are the characteristics of who I am as your Lord and Savior. Okay. Verse 6 and 7. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Okay. So... God says, if you want to know who I am, if you want a definition of my name, of what I stand for, here you go, right? Here's a list. Now, I kind of pulled them out for us. The characteristics of who our God is and how he wants to be known right, to us. Our first kind of breakout is he stands on his own. And when we look at this list, we think, okay, right? That's a God that I want, right? In fact, it's a God that, um, that, that, that embodies, right, the things that we hope to be. A God that is compassionate, right? That cares about uh, the trials and the troubles and the suffering of us on this earth. So not just a distant God on Mount Sinai or far, far away that somehow, you know, kind of flicked us moving and then hands off the rest of the time, but a God that is compassionate, a God that cares what happens in our lives, a God that is not only a God for all people, but for you, right? So God that's compassionate, God that's gracious, right? um, that idea of overflowing in grace, that, that, that undeserved love, that even when, when we have gone our own way, that God's grace just continues to overflow, almost unquenchable undeserved love, right? That he's slow to anger, so he's not quick-tempered. He doesn't just strike us down at the, at the, at the um, softest footstep, right? He's slow to anger. 
opposite of that is he's abounding in love. And you get the sense, even as God is describing himself, that these are not things that are just um, one-offs. These aren't things and characteristics of your God that just happen occasionally when he, had a really, when he has a really good night's sleep and he's been able to eat a good meal, right? Because sometimes that happens with us, doesn't it? But you get the sense God says, this is my essence. This is how I'm built. This is who I am, right? Abounding in love. He says, I'm faithful. So as often as you are faithless, I am faithful. I don't cut and run. I don't kick you to the curb. Uh, if you are broken or fractured, I don't throw you out with tomorrow's garbage, right? He says, I maintain love. And you get a little sense of um, that we have a God that is a God of relationships. So this, again, is not just some isolated, distant God, but he's a God that wants relationship, that has built us for relationship and to maintain those relationships over a long period of time, right? That he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That he is forgiving eternally, continually, right? And the last one is that he's just. And this last one is maybe the one where even as I read the text, you're thinking in your mind, uh, punishing to the third and fourth generation. But here's what I want to say to you. If all of the things on that first part of the list are things that you want in your God, then we must admit that we want the last one too. And in fact, if we don't have the last one, None of the other ones actually make much of a difference. In fact, if we don't have the last one, none of the other ones make him a God. He, it makes him just like you and I. See, the truth is we not only want, but we need a God who is perfectly loving, but also perfectly just. Right? We want a God that stands with, with the right and righteous, right? That stands against evil. We want a God that is a perfect judge, that, that knows exactly what is right and what is wrong. We want a God that, that um, sees through on his promises. We want a God that stands in opposition to evil and evildoers and sin and pain and suffering and murder and all of these things that we see in the world around us. We want a God that says that is, that is not right, it is not good, and it won't will not stand, right? Talk about God punishing to the third and fourth generation. We understand that, don't we? Because there are things that we do. There are consequences that I have as a father that will reverberate with my children and with my grandchildren, right? See, I think on some level we understand that our actions have consequences, both reverberating for good but sometimes even for difficulty, right? And so when God lays out his name for us, this is who he is, both perfectly loving and perfectly just. And the truth is, depending where we stand, he needs to be both, doesn't he, right? Perfectly loving, but also perfectly just. Now, when you see that list, say, okay, That's God's list for himself. Here's the difficult part. It stands a little bit in contrast to us, doesn't it? Compassionate. How often compassion is the last thing on our lips or in our actions, right? Um, How compassionate are you on your commute into work, right, on a Monday morning? Say, well, my compassion has some bounds, Pastor, right? I actually check my compassion at the door when I close it and get in my car, right? 
But that's true, isn't it? Like our compassion, we say, if, if, if it's the right circumstances and if it's the right person, if they've done the right things, if they treated me in the right way and if they've said the right things and if they responded in just the right way that I demand of them, then, well, then I'll be compassionate. Then I'll be understanding. But how often does that happen? Almost never, right? Almost never. And yet our God is always compassionate about gracious, right? Are we grace-filled? When, 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 um, when the pressure is on, when we are needled, when we, are, when, we are, uh, when we suffer, when we run into roadblocks, what comes pouring out of our mouths and our actions? Is it anger, vitriol, vengeance? Or is it grace, right? Is it grace that comes flowing out of us? Slow to anger. We could probably go to our commute again, right? Our God is slow to anger, not quick. Not a, a, uh, um, not a, a hot-button temper that's ready to go off, right? God does not describe himself uh, like someone that you have to walk on eggshells around because if you don't do just the right thing, you know they're going to snap. That's not our God, but how often is that us? In our marriages, in our families, at our workplace? If you polled your coworkers, your family, the people closest to you, would they describe you as quick to anger? Right? Do they feel that they have to walk on eggshells when they're near you? Right? Our God is the opposite, right? He abounds in love. Our love far too often is conditional, not abounding, not just pouring out. I'll love as long as you do what I ask you to do. I'll love as long as I deem you worthy of the love that I'm going to give you. Far too often as believers, as, as human beings, we, make, we say we love, we want to love, but, but we make it absolutely conditional. I'll love if... I'll love you when, I'll love you but, right? That's all conditional love, isn't it, right? You step to the line, you toe the line, you do what I expect of you, then I'll show you love. But here's the amazing thing, our God doesn't deal with us in that way. His love is, is, is undeserved and it is abounding. Right? He's faithful. As often as we, we, we um, are quick to kick our God to the curb when he gets in the way of our plan, our desires, uh, what we want for our life, God says, I'm faithful. He says, I don't walk away even if you do. I never cut and run. He says, I maintain love, right? I maintain relationships. Those of you that um, think back in your minds or think in your, in your life, how many relationships do you have that have spanned years, maybe decades Right? Can you count them on one hand? Do you only need three fingers? Maybe two? Right? See, we, we understand like how hard it is to maintain healthy relationships with people that we would claim to love more than anything in this world. We know how difficult that is, but God 
maintains that relationship with us. In fact, he yearns for it. He wants it in us, right? He wants that relationship with us. He does that through the study of his word. He does that on a Sunday morning. He does that in our lives, right? He says, I want to maintain that love. Forgiving wickedness, right? How forgiving are we? Again, far too often conditional, conditionally based, right? I will offer you my forgiveness as long as these conditions are met, right? And lastly, just. Are we just? We like to think so, right? In fact, this is one where it's very interesting that we would like nothing more than to be the just arbiter and judge, judging who is right and who is wrong. And yet, are we perfect at that? Absolutely not. Because here's the thing, we always always cast ourselves in the best possible light, simultaneously casting others who have offended us in the worst possible light. Is that an independent arbiter and judge? No, actually. So even on our best days, we have to admit that we aren't perfect in our decision-making, in our justice. Uh, We may cry out for it, but even in our own lives, we say, This or that should happen, and yet when it happens to us, we say, but we're an exception. It's just just a slip-up, just a little mistake. That person should be banned forever, but me? Ah, I just, you know, mercy, mercy. Truth is, we've got a God that is perfectly just, right? That knows right and wrong, knows our hearts, knows the facade that we can put up, sees right into our souls. And so here's the amazing thing. When God says, these are all the things that I am, the opposite side of that mirror, which I think at times can maybe cause us to tremble a little bit, is that we see all the ways that we're not. But thank God that he is, right? Go to our next verse here, 8 and 9. Moses' response. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Okay. God comes and stands with Moses. Now keep in mind all that had happened, right? Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, golden calf. Moses is here. God comes and stands with him and says, this is who I am. And yet this is... Moses' reaction to God revealing himself. Now, how and why would he respond or react in that way? It says two things. Lord, go with us and take us as your inheritance. Moses appeals to his God above, to his abounding love and grace, and he asks the Lord to go with us. And in fact, in, uh, um, um, in his response, he even admits, he said, we're a stiff-necked people, which is kind of an Old Testament way, nice way of saying yeah, we're faithless. And we were, and our people were bowing down to golden calves not too long ago, right? Moses admits that. And yet, he says, Lord, go with us. Walk with us. As you have, continue to walk with us. And even more importantly, take us as your inheritance. So not only walk with us now, here in this life, but Moses is also looking into the future. He's saying, Take us as your inheritance. Make us a part of your family and all the things that come with you and your name and your household. So Moses 
appeals to his God, not only in the here and now, but also into the future. Now, why and how could Moses or you and I appeal to our God above after we saw the magnificence of how he revealed himself to us? What in the world would give us standing to stand before a perfect, righteous God in the way that he just laid out for us in the book of Exodus? John actually gives us a little insight into that. John 1.17 says this, For the law was given through Moses, right? Ten commandments, God says, I'm making a covenant with you. But if some of you know John 1.17, you also know that it doesn't end there. Continues with this, But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so what was Moses and the Israelites looking at and ahead to? Christ. And the fulfillment of that promise. If the law came through Moses, grace and truth and love, abounding love, come through Jesus Christ. We don't need to perch on a 30-foot pillar and reach to our God above and try to make ourselves worthy. You have something that is far greater and far better that has, has made you not only worthy but a part of God's kingdom above. And it's nothing you've done. It's not your accomplishment, it's not the work of your hands, it's none of that. It's Christ, right? Rather than standing on a 30-foot pillar, you have a Lord and Savior. You have a divine God that said, I will enter into your world, into your history, and I will outstretch my arms and allow those nails to be driven through my hands and my feet, and I will give my life in your place, right? All of the ways God described himself come to fruition in Jesus Christ. Everything that God is, we see physically in Jesus Christ. His perfect love, his perfect justice, all found on the cross as Christ was punished in our place. As, we are, are, as God's forgiveness is poured out on us and we are assured, you are assured that you are his inheritance, that you have a home in heaven because of Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so it's not about Simon Stylides trying to make himself right in the eyes of his God above it's our God above, your God above, who came into your world, our world, who has made us right with our God. That's the undeserved love that we have in Christ Jesus. Not vainly trying to grab God and bring him down to us, but a God that said, I will come to you and willingly give my life on the cross so that you will know that you were forgiven. So when God gives us that definition, that Old Testament definition of who he is is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Some commentators, scholars, uh, have actually said that this portion of Exodus, which is repeated and quoted in the Old Testament uh, more than 20 times, so God saying gracious and compassionate, um, this portion of Exodus are repeated at least 20 times in the Old Testament. So if the Old Testament repeats it, it means it's important, right? Many commentators have said that this portion of Exodus is the Old Testament version of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Because as he revealed himself to Moses, he knew this is what would result in it. That he would give his life on the cross for you. And so as we hear the beautiful description, definition of who our God is above, it leads us necessarily to Christ and through the cross and knowing that we don't have to earn our 
entrance into heaven. But Christ has won it on your behalf. Uh, vacation time. If you want to go see Simeon Stylides' column, this is it. It's in western Syria. You can go on a trip there. They built a church around it. Now, if you're wondering where's the column, it's not any of these. You see that stone in the middle? That's all that's left of it, right? And maybe that's a good illustration. If we stand on the things of this world, our own intellect, our own reason, our own thoughts and ideas, sooner or later, the, the erosion of time and circumstances will wear it down to a nub and we'll be no closer to our God above, in fact, further from him. But thank God for us, for you, that we don't have to be Simeon, Simeon Stylides and stand on that column, right? That our God above came to us, descended into our world in order to lift us to him. Today, as you leave, maybe let those dual things echo in your mind. Who our God is and what his name means, the fulfillment of that in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Amen.